This is The Guardian. Welcome to Weekend, a podcast that helps you switch off from your busy day-to-day and find entertainment and inspiration in the best Guardian and Observer writing from the week. You can either listen to this as one podcast or play each article as individual listens. Just scroll down the description on the podcast page for the timings of what we are featuring. Coming up, Marina Hyde on the people obsessing over Meghan and Harry's obsessing. Columnist Annalisa Barbieri sets down a little guidance on how to navigate tricky Christmas conversations. And finally, journalist Kate Wyver explores the history and future of a beloved British seasonal character, the Panto Dame. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Before we begin, just a warning. There's a bit of bad language in this episode. Now, they say they're seeking a new life but the Sussexes seem obsessed with their old one. And, observes Marina Hyde, it seems that the people who are enraged by them just can't seem to talk about anything else. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Of all the charges laid at the door of Harry and Meghan, we can reasonably discount the idea that being paid by Netflix is the sin to end all sins. I'm not sure how people think the British royal family have historically accrued their vast wealth, but a contract with a streaming giant is right down the list of money-spinning horrors. Let's face it, there are a lot worse ways to lay your hands on a reported £88 million in today's money. No one dissolved the monasteries here. No one ran a foreign country as an extraction colony. Looting-wise, no one did much beyond taking a call from telly warlord Ted Sarandos and thinking, yes please, this is the market value of my truth. Anyway, on with the show. Again. I can't help feeling the Sussexes increasingly come across as a pair of ancient mariners with a TV contract, condemned to tell their tale to everyone they meet. After this latest exhaustive, and fairly exhausting, six-parter, many will now feel they have seen enough of the albatross in question, which has been hung around the neck either of the Sussexes or the news media, depending on to whom you speak. Both sides of this forever war seem locked in an endless cycle of tale-telling, which will ultimately have to be moved on from. Or not, if it keeps being lucrative for both sides – of which more shortly. Despite the work that has gone into crafting the impression of a further banquet of revelations, the Sussexes really only have one story to tell. Admittedly, it's a dramatic and sensational one that has sold countless books and papers and driven online traffic and TV ratings around the world. 
They told it to Oprah last year, and now they are telling it again to Netflix viewers. In some ways, there's nothing wrong with telling the same story over and over again. John Grisham does it, though he is at least able to change the names and locations. The most successful movie stars have always repeatedly played some lightly adjusted version of their persona on the time-worn and financially proven principle of giving the public what it wants. That's showbiz. The question with Meghan and Harry is how long it can go on after this latest rather repetitive instalment, or indeed how long anyone focused on New Horizons really wishes to be trapped in this same old cycle. The cycle is certainly of the vicious variety. The Sussexes publicly say something, the papers pounce on it and make merry hell with it for days or weeks, some drama queen palace courtier makes a disparaging off-the-record comment, a new grievance is thereby minted on which the Sussexes will soon publicly say something. Repeat cycle. But is this just going to be it forever? The returns look likely to be diminishing. It will, surely, eventually become incredibly boring. Indeed, for many it already has, with even some sympathisers now judging that things could be a lot worse. Then again, I'm not sure they have the cost-of-living crisis in Montecito. Despite it being a cliché, I do think one of the soundest pieces of advice is that the best revenge is a good life. However, the more classic form of revenge, which the Sussexes are pursuing, is much more lucrative. For all their talk of escape, they are still locked in a destructively symbiotic relationship with their detractors. You shut up! No, you shut up! Crucially, though, their detractors also have a choice, which is to leave the entire thing alone. We do, after all, know this story now and pretending that unignorable news is being made is just something you tell yourself as a fig leaf to keep running it all at remorseless length because it sells papers and drives traffic and engagement. But hey, everyone's on the take. As for the consumers of the endless psychodrama, there is little so enduring as the public's unwillingness to see its part in all of this. A few years ago, Prince William and his brother participated in a documentary about their mother, in which they recalled the scenes in the wake of Princess Diana's death, when the children were famously forced out in public to view tributes and observe the crowds. People wanted to grab us, touch us, remembered William. They were shouting, wailing, literally wailing at us, throwing flowers and yelling, sobbing, breaking down. People fainted and collapsed. It was a very alien environment. Alien is a kind way of putting it. Those people behaved weirdly and appallingly, yet would never dream of recognising their behaviour as such. Many of them are the same people now howling about the Sussexes, the same people who absolutely hoovered up the intrusive coverage of Diana, the same people who then pretended to be disgusted by it all after she died. The same people who demanded the late Queen leave off comforting her young grandsons at Balmoral, despite the fact they'd lost their mother and come back to London to, what, comfort them? Grow up. 
But then a lot of people love all this stuff, whether or not they care to admit it. They love the drama, love to take it personally, love to get angry about it, love to act as if they know the family, love to poor, bereaved children, love to comment, love the whole endless shooting match. Don't get me wrong, I too am a grateful beneficiary, given I've just got another column out of it. But it all cuts both ways. A disapproving and enraged market is still a market. Whatever you think of Meghan and Harry and their truth, it's difficult not to judge that much of the British public has a long, long way to go before it faces up to its own. That was Why Does the Harry and Meghan Psychodrama Continue? Because No One Really Wants It to End by Marina Hyde Read by Colleen Prendergast Next, are you ready to face the relatives in less than 10 days? Here's how to keep calm around the dinner table this year with our advice expert Annalisa Barbieri's Guide to Diffusing Festive Feuds Read by William Vanderpoy. Christmas is only universally joyous for children. At some point, you grow up and it gets complicated. At least, that is how it seems from the letters I receive. They start to roll in around August, and although the details and personalities change, the story always goes something like this. I want to spend Christmas doing X, but my parents slash in-laws slash siblings want me to do Y. How can I tell them that's not what I want to do? These are people perfectly used to dealing with tricky situations in their professional lives. But Christmas, combined with family expectations, seems to catapult them back to their childhoods. While consciously we all may want the best for Christmas, says psychotherapist Mark Varmeyer, there is probably no other day that has the power to propel us back to visiting the ghosts of the past. There are expectations that Christmas must be great, but the combination of the complex family dynamics and our propensity to psychologically regress, it's no wonder that it can feel like a powder keg situation. In desperation, some readers book holidays far away, having a cast-iron excuse to not see family. This works. Until next year. If you're still here, you need to prepare. It's much harder to calm yourself from a point of stress, so just as you would prep Christmas dinner, prep yourself. Psychotherapist Faye Robinson's favourite approach for coping with hostile environments is to conjure up a beautiful bubble where the colour, texture and temperature are just wonderful for you and hold it in mind if the room gets frosty. Keep your shoulders down and practice deep breathing. I personally would also avoid alcohol until late in the day. I also find it helps to channel a character. Depending on the situation, my favourites are Pam, played by Alison Stedman from Gavin and Stacey. Bright and breezy, plus the odd, oh my Christ, can lighten many a scenario. And Kathy, played by Leslie Manville, from the sitcom Mum, whose response to criticism is a slight pause 
followed by a quiet, devastating, okay, that implies she doesn't give a shit what you think. Never forget what a great conversational tool silence is if someone is being mean to you. Those seconds make them squirm. Now, let's get down to specific scenarios. Here are my tips to navigating those tense yuletide moments. Number one. Lovely house. Heating bill must be a fortune. I have a lot of experience with this one. We all know that any negative comment is really a reflection not on you, but on the person saying it. But in the heat of the moment, it's hard to remember this. Snide little comments are designed to put you down. They are coping, says Varmea, with difficult feelings by trying to project them onto you. This is a powerful psychological defence. Knowing this may lessen the sting, but it doesn't make it go away, especially if you've had a lifetime of such barbs. The best thing to do is turn the subject back to them and ask them a question. For example, to the comment, haven't you put on weight, slash, look older, slash, started to go bald, a response could be, goodness, you are paying attention, aren't you? How are things with you? Similarly, your house must be a lot of work. It can be, but I love it. What's your house like? Or, you look tired. I know, right? I was up all night shagging. What's your excuse? Number two. I just don't see the point in protesting. This is a really difficult one. Silence in response to a different view can seem complicit, but it makes things easier. Because A, Christmas really isn't the time to have these discussions. B, you're not going to change their mind over the course of a day. And C, a relative who doesn't get this and pushes a political slash ideological agenda is really just asking for attention. Good stock phrases. Really? That's so interesting. Good to know what you would do. This one is brilliant for any unwanted advice. Goodness, I hadn't heard that. None of these are aggressive or acquiescent. They don't reveal what you think and, crucially, they don't actively invite more discussion. Number three. Little B must be in bed by 6pm. Being in the same family doesn't mean you and your relatives will parent the same way. Criticising someone else's parenting, says relationship psychotherapist Silva Neves, has the potential to ruin Christmas. The only exception is if you witness a child being mistreated in front of you, but in most cases, your parenting opinion is unnecessary. Remember, parenting can release huge emotions, often nothing to do with what's going on in front of you. If you can take a moment to think, what is this really bringing up for me? Sibling rivalry? Feeling you weren't treated fairly as a child? These are important, but all things to look at after Christmas. It really doesn't matter if for one or two nights your children go to bed earlier to fit in with others, or they eat nothing but candy canes. It won't undo the regular parenting you do. If a family member buys lavish presents you couldn't afford, they're probably not confident that they themselves are enough. See it as that, 
rather than them trying to outdo you. Also, children can see past artifice and extravagance. If someone comments on the way you parent, a good response is a laconic, yeah, that's the way we do it, and it works for us. Number four. Everyone, this is Joe. Joe, this is everyone. Bringing a new friend or partner along might be much less stressful than you fear because people tend to be on their best behaviour when there's a new person in the mix. So it's less likely to be an issue of how to integrate this new person than the impact on you. Because in a weird one-upmanship way, family, often siblings, can start to put you down to gain favour with the new person. If you're feeling feisty, you could just call out this behaviour and say, Oh look, Sally must like you. She's showing off in front of you. If you're genuinely worried about integration, pre-warn the person what subjects to steer clear of. But if the new friend slash partner is going to be part of the family, ultimately you need to leave everyone to it. On the upside, new people coming into an established dynamic can often be helpful in seeing toxic family patterns you've long ago grown blind to. Number five. Still single? Never mind. This isn't easy if you don't want to be single, and even harder if everyone keeps reminding you of that. Neves thinks, if someone makes a comment, raise your head high, feel proud, and propose a toast to celebrate singledom. Don't collude with societal pressures and myths. One of them is that being in a relationship is a mark of success and being single is sad. The truth is that some people in relationships live miserable lives and there are many very happy single people. Comment. Haven't you met the right person yet? Response. No. Have you? Especially good for married people. When are you going to settle down? Just as soon as dinner is over, with a nice cup of tea, I hope you'll make for me. And finally, never give mean people ammunition to hurt you with. Don't serve up a meal you've worked hard on with the words, Sorry, I burnt the spuds. Don't flag up your failures, real or imagined. Big yourself up. Take up room. And if you're about to go into a tricky, extended family situation, let your chosen family, partner and children, if they're of an appropriate age, know what you need from them. You can even have a safe word. I'm not telling you what ours is. Which, if spoken, can be used to semaphore that you need backup. Maybe a hug. Maybe five minutes in the kitchen. If you're going into a family's viper's nest alone, can you bring a friend? or someone at the end of the phone, to help you debrief and remind you how fabulous you are. And if it's really tough, remember, these people don't define you, and Santa sees all. That was Prep Your Replies, Take Deep Breaths and Don't Apologise for Burnt Spuds. How to Get Through Christmas Without Falling Out With Your Family by Annalisa Barbieri, read by William Vanderpoy. Listen to the podcast Conversations with Annalisa Barbieri at pod.link. 
We'll be back after this short break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Weekend. Finally, fire the glitter cannons, unleash the water pistols. The panto season is here. But how did the cross-dressing dame become so central to the tradition? And in an age of gender fluidity, should we still be laughing? Kate Wyver explores one of theatre's most treasured characters through the ages. Read by Colleen Prendergast. With his thick eyebrows drawn way up high on his forehead and the tip of his nose heavily powdered with rouge, Dan Lino's Mother Goose was a sensation. A music hall celebrity, a stand-up comic and a champion clog dancer, Lino was the star of late Victorian pantomime. His career began at the Surrey Theatre in 1886 and his performances particularly his mother goose in 1902, which he played alongside a gaggle of live animals, came to define the role of the dame as we know her now, the -the over-the-top, unlucky-in-love, slapstick heart of the show. Since the late 19th century, panto has been a fixture in the British festive season, with celebrities taking to the stage for six weeks to make everyone from toddlers to great-grandparents giggle. I have always been an avid fan. In 2021, I saw three in one day. But during the last few seasons, I frequently felt uncomfortable at some of the laughter directed towards panto dames. Amid the whirling of puns and ever more extravagant outfits, I have increasingly felt that the joke presented to the audience is rooted in damaging stereotypes about gender. When the water guns are empty and the glitter cannons have been fired, what's so funny about a bloke in a frock? If I knew that, I'd be a billionaire, says Clive Roll, who is taking on the role of Mother Goose at this year's panto at the Hackney Empire in London. Roll is one of the most beloved dames around, and Mother Goose, a role for which he was Olivier nominated in 2008, is his 15th panto at the venue. The response from the audience, if you get it right, is exhilarating, he says, of the joy of performing the dame. It's stand-up comedy with a cast. It's variety with a narrative. These are the traditions modern panto comes from. Music hall and variety, commedia dell'arte and the Regency era of clowning, led by the great Joseph Grimaldi. In the late 19th century, when producer Augustus Harris saw how popular musical was with the working classes, 
he started bringing in stars such as Leno to his immense pantos at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane in order to draw in wider audiences. Panto became a more inclusive, cacophonous family affair, with a man in drag centre stage to welcome everyone in from the cold. Theatre has always embraced cross-dressing. From the Romans playing women long before women were allowed to play themselves, to male impersonators such as Vesta Tilly, the highest-paid female performer of the music hall era, gender has always been scrutinised, sent up and experimented with. In the early days of modern panto, women took on the principal male roles, allowing them to show the audience a little leg. But it was not an era when a lady could have anything undignified happen to her says Nigel Ellicott, the dame in Richmond Theatre's production of Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and a keen panto historian. She couldn't have a custard pie in the face, she couldn't fall over, so they looked to the older male comedians and put them in female roles where they could be caricatured and funny. And that, he says, is how we got our modern dames in drag. Many people like to separate the two. I've always said that I'm not a drag queen, Rose says, frankly. I'm not trying to make any social comment on femininity or masculinity. I'm just trying to be funny. Ellicott echoes this point. We're not trying to be convincing. It's not a drag act where you do actually look like glamorous ladies. This distinction is key. In Panto, it should be obvious that the dame is really a man in a woman's clothes. Often, the incongruence is the joke. It's done in a light-hearted way, but even so, is it possible that this portrayal and our responses to it perpetuate harmful ideas of presenting as the opposite gender? I can't go to a Panto without feeling uncomfortable at the type of laughter that exists says Sab Samuel, who is also known as drag queen Ada HD. I'm enjoying myself, and then I think, what are you really laughing at here? Samuel runs Drag Queen Story Hour UK, a company that organises drag queens reading stories to children in libraries. Panto dames are drag queens, Samuel says adamantly. There is very little difference. We've been saying for years that Drag Queen Story Hour UK is panto in a library. But the two are treated very differently by the public. Where panto dames have been widely accepted as family-friendly entertainment, drag has historically been, and continues to be, subject to significant discrimination. This is certainly true of Samuel's experience. Over the last few years, Drag Queen Story Hour UK has received an onslaught of abuse and aggressive protests. I've had to move house because my address was made public, Samuel says. This summer, I was followed across the whole of the country with people shouting the words paedophile and groomer at me. I was in a library reading my children's book about not bullying, while outside the library, homophobic people were bullying the parents and kids walking in. At the start of our conversation, Samuel gets a notification of a tweet. They hold the phone up to show me the meme. The top half is a picture of drag queens, 
the bottom half is a firing squad. Why is there such a marked difference in public sentiment towards panto dames and drag queens? It's different histories, Samuel suggests. Drag artists are seen as a representation of the queer community. They are always at the forefront of LGBTQ plus rights, and panto dames are not. Bigots will happily accept a panto dame, but not a drag artist. In panto, because the exploration of gender is a joke, a one-time thing, safe in the proscenium arch, it's not seen as threatening to someone with prejudiced ideas about queerness. But in an everyday space, such as a library, with an act so rooted in queer history and experience, it's harder to separate the LGBTQ plus culture from the performer and the performance. Though Drag Queen Story Hour UK is all about making children laugh, Samuel explains that the difference is that kids are laughing with them, rather than at them. As Samuel puts it, the panto dame is the joke, the drag queen makes the joke. At the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in London, Tim Benzie and Paul Joseph have written queer adult pantos for the last five years. This year's is Cracked, a raucous retelling of Snow White. Their primary focus, after packing in as many gags as they can, is ensuring the traditions of panto are done in a way that centres LGBTQ plus experiences. With a lot of pantos, the main target is children, says Joseph. Our responsibility is to queer adults. We're there for the people who had a tough time growing up, to make sure they're not being re-traumatised by the same old crap they would have spent years listening to early on. You can allow people to have the elements of the traditions they enjoy, adds Joseph, and dispose of the stuff that's going to make people feel uncomfortable. It's the writer's responsibility to be better, funnier, smarter. Small changes are shifting the landscape of dames today Gradually, more women are being cast as the dame, and drag performers are taking on other roles in shows, such as last year's all-drag tour of Dick Whittington. The idea that pantomime can shift and adapt to suit the day is nothing new. Over the years, Roe has seen significant changes to jokes and scripts. There are things we might have said 15, 20 years ago, with all innocence, he says, that we wouldn't say now, that wouldn't be perceived as funny. This adaptability is a core part of the form, he says, reiterating that he hopes everyone feels welcome and included at every panto he's a part of. Pantomime is, at its best, always changing. It's a comment on the time, so it's pantomime's job to metamorphosize. This is not about silencing comedy or damning dames. But when LGBTQ plus rights are being eroded and trans people are subjected to hate crimes and media vitriol, the consideration of how our performance of gender affects our attitudes towards it offstage is important. Whether we mock or celebrate makes a difference. And with such enormous and avid audiences, Pantos have the power to influence people's prejudices.
but the new breed of dames seem more intent on making us laugh with their characters, not their negative stereotyping, which all helps to make panto season the most wonderful time. That was Oh Yes It Is, Oh No It Isn't. Is the Panto Dame Still a Suitable Cause for Mirth? By Kate Wyver. Read by Colleen Prendergast. Before you go, we wanted to let you know about The Guardian and Observer's 2022 charity appeal. If you had to pick between heating and eating, which would you choose? As the cost of living crisis pushes 14.5 million people below the UK poverty line, more families than ever are facing a bleak Christmas. Please join us as we raise funds for charities working on the front line. All donations will go to Citizens Advice and Locality to help support local grassroots projects which aim to support those who have been hit the hardest. You can find the link to donate on the weekend episode page at theguardian.com. That's all from us. This has been Weekend, a Guardian podcast. This week's articles were read by Colleen Prendergast and William Vanderpoy and presented by me, Savannah Ayoade Greaves. This episode was produced by Rachel Porter. Original music by Axel Cacoutier. The executive producer was Danielle Stevens. Join us again next Saturday. Thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.